back with another episode of Sociable Socialism. I'm Joe Loudguy, your host, Joe Loudon. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Today we will be talking about the uh, merits of vote shaming. And I know that there are going to be a lot of people that probably right out the gate are like, what? No, not vote shaming. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about that with you. Uh, we're also uh, going to discuss the recent climate change town halls. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. And uh, roll music. Now, I want to thank you all for tuning in, and uh, I think we finally hit our regular schedule sometime Wednesday or Thursday. Seems like uh, when I am in my creative mood, the juices are really flowing those days. And uh, now that I've had my third cup of coffee, I feel like we can really get started. And let me start off, though, by saying that I understand why a lot of negative stigma is related to the subject of vote shaming. Uh, Now, for those of you that don't, or at least don't know why, uh, in recent memory, at any rate, uh, it it has gained a resurgence as something that is talked about online. Uh, In 2016, uh, the debacle uh, that was the Bernie versus Hillary uh, showdown at the convention, well... It, people did not appreciate that the Hillary supporters, after in many of our opinions, mine included, uh, the DNC had their thumb on the scale for her the whole time and was in fact, uh, uh, their finances were directly tied to the Clinton campaign. Uh, Knowing that, and we learned that from Donna Brazil, who is by no means a progressive ally, she just happened to you know, be in charge at that time and told us all what we all had already suspected uh, is that under Barack Obama, the DNC was not built up. Uh, He did not invest uh, in local down-ballot races. And he also uh, kept a lot of paid consultants uh, even during non-campaign seasons, which is an easy way to bleed money. And so, come Hillary time, she basically turns the DNC into an arm of the Clinton campaign because they needed the cash to operate. Uh, Debbie Weisserman Schultz was one of the big architects of that. And um, suffice it to say, a lot of Bernie voters were not thrilled that our darling boy had been in fighting an uphill battle against a corrupt party that never intended to make it a fair fight. And then these Clinton surrogates would shame us for not voting for her. And that eventually translated over to the general uh, and helped in no small part by Hillary Clinton's terrible campaigning uh, with her slogan being, I'm with her. Uh, All... All of her strategy was derived from I'm better than Trump. And people were 
rightfully upset, given that context I had earlier uh, with the Bernie Sanders versus uh, Hillary in the primary, and did not appreciate Clinton surrogates trying to shame us into voting for her after we felt like we'd been cheated. A lot of people still say that the primary was rigged. I don't know if I like that term. I've always preferred that we, we the DNC had their thumb in the scale. I prefer to phrase it that way because I think that is indisputable given what we know about the DNC's finances. And when you talk about rigging, that means different things to different people. Like, were they, like, deliberately changing votes, you know, which I I don't believe was the case. So I I prefer the term that I, I used, and I understand why in recent memory progressives don't appreciate vote shaming and in fact there's been a sort of a a counter movement within the progressive uh vote well we're a coalition really uh, of a bunch of different ideas but within the progressive coalition there's been this counter movement against vote shaming in all of its forms as a response to the clinton campaign's use of, of it as their primary tactic for garnering votes just i'm better than him if you vote for him you're sexist and, you know, racist, and it doesn't matter that my policies are woefully insufficient. And in that circumstance, it's it's hard <laughs> to swallow your pride to basically be shamed by people you know are hurting the country into doing something that you admit. You know, Hillary Clinton is a her- horrible candidate. She was horrible in a lot of different ways. Uh, she voted for the Iraq war. She got us into Libya. She told us that universal health care would never come to pass. You know, and it, it, it is not like I don't appreciate why we hated Clinton. I hate Hillary Clinton. I, I think that she is a major contributor to what has gone wrong in the Democratic Party. Uh, it's establishment, wealthy, elite-minded mentality has its roots in the Clintons, uh, Bill and Hillary, uh, and frankly, I mean, the Cuomos as well are another big part of that. And uh, it is... It's difficult to see people like that uh, basically smugly telling you you don't have another option. And a lot of people would rather say fuck you and throw a Molotov at the system. And to that end, some people did. They voted for Trump, even though they didn't think he was a good candidate, they would have rather voted for Bernie. Uh, they voted for Trump. Now, uh, fewer Bernie voters, I might add, voted for Trump than Hillary voters voted for McCain when Barack Obama won the nomination in 2008. 16% of Hillary voters voted for McCain, whereas 8% of Bernie voters voted for Trump. Uh, but that has not stopped the Hillary Clintonites from blaming us for the fact that Trump's in office, failing to... Uh, acknowledge that their candidate was the entire cause of all of it. Because if their candidate had been a stronger candidate, we wouldn't have been in this mess. So uh, it is, it's not something that is is not without its complications. You know, if it seems like I'm rambling a bit, it's only because there are a lot of different points uh, tied up in why vote shaming is something that people don't appreciate. They still liken it to the Hillary Clinton campaign, basically telling us, you don't have another option. Shut up and take it. And a lot of people are innately opposed to that. And they think that vote shaming should be in no way, shape, or form used to garner votes. And 
I certainly am not here to advocate that vote shaming is your go-to option ever. I think that policy trumps everything. I think having an ideology trumps everything. You just have to be honest about what your ideology is. Obviously, I, I am socialist. I uh, advocate for the disaggregation of wealth. I, I don't think it's good to have wealth concentrated in the hands of uh, some elite few. I think that it is better shared amongst the people and democratically decided upon. Uh, and to that end, I, I don't think I am out of step, frankly, with a lot of Americans. I just think a lot of Americans don't know what to call that ideology. They just think that, you know, it's about giving people a fair shake, when in reality, that is a socialist mentality. Now, there are certainly other components to it, and components that I would debate. I mean, when we talk about open borders, I certainly see an argument for open borders. I'm not going to discuss that on this video, that'll or pff, podcast, that'll be for another time. But uh, I, I, I have an ideology, and I think ideology should be center focus. Uh, but the, the way vote shaming has evolved in the aftermath of the 2016 election is very interesting to me. Uh, I debate people on Twitter every now and again, and one of them said that if the DNC cheats Bernie again this time, he's going to vote for Trump just to destroy the DNC. And I told him, no, don't do that. If you feel so compelled, go ahead and vote third party, which is already a concession, frankly. I don't think voting third party is useful in a swing state. Now, he lived in California, so he's not in a swing state. If you're in a swing state and you vote third party, um, again, you know, I, uh, Michael Brooks today, frankly, uh, said it on the Majority Report very well, uh, where he said that I hate Hillary Clinton. But there are people in a different life circumstance than me, the Dreamers, who would have done better under Hillary Clinton than they are doing under Donald Trump. So I voted for Hillary Clinton and I told people to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I agree with that mentality. I think that the people that didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in swing states, again, you are your vote. Your vote represents you. And this is sort of the heart and soul of why I'm talking about vote shaming today, is that Vote shaming became this negative because Hillary made it her whole campaign strategy. But I'm not here to talk about vote shaming in particular. I'm more here to talk about shame. You know, the idea of shame. Why do we use shame? Why is that a part of the social construct? Uh, the way in which we interact with one another. We use it uh, to get people uh, to behave a certain way in a relatively harmless method. You know, shame doesn't feel great when it's used on you, but oftentimes it is a teacher, you know? Like, uh, we shame people for things we shouldn't, certainly. There are societal constructs that uh, shouldn't be there, and shame is not always applied in the right direction, just like how speeding tickets are not always applied for the right reasons, you know? But I mean, that doesn't mean that we should completely get rid of the speed limit. Uh, it does mean that we maybe need to rework the way fines operate, maybe have to rethink it, but the actual method of controlling how fast someone goes down a highway, I don't think anyone is going to debate that that is sometimes necessary, just like how shame as a concept is sometimes necessary. So vote shaming, people that now argue that vote shaming in any form it takes, is a negative and a completely disqualifying trait, 
I think need to reevaluate why we shame people in the first place. We do it because you are making an ethically wrong decision or an intellectually wrong decision, and we want to curb that behavior out of you. Uh, now, again, I've already made it clear that there are certainly situations where uh, shame is applied in the wrong way. And that is the nature of how any law or any behavior, frankly, is applied in the wrong way. It is possible to do things negatively, but that does not mean the doing of them is entirely innately negative. Uh, when Hillary Clinton used vote shaming as her entire campaign strategy, yeah, that's a negative. I don't dispute that. I think that no one would dispute that. But to then claim that vote shaming in all of its forms is, in fact, a disqualifier is, to me, an excuse. It's, it's sort of cowardly. And the reason why that has happened now is, uh, frankly, it's because there's a lot more power in the progressive movement and certain dissatisfied segments of that coalition uh, do not want the bulk of the movement to shame them for refusing to get on board with certain policies. Uh, and what am I referring to specifically? Mostly I'm referring to the Tulsi supporters uh, in general, uh, I think, uh, do not appreciate being vote shamed. They're like, why am I obligated to vote for Bernie Sanders? It's not about being obligated. It's that you are not thinking about this rationally. And we spell that out to you in eight or nine different ways. Bernie's platform is more comprehensive. Bernie himself is more experienced. He's been doing this for 40 years. Uh, he has a view of foreign policy that is unmatched in the Democratic field, yes, even by Tulsi, and people that say she's going to get us out of the wars. Bernie doesn't just want to get us out of the wars. He wants to reinvest in the areas we've destroyed as a way of helping curb climate change and start to undo some of our damage. Like, that is unparalleled. It's phenomenal. And, of course, I'll get more into that later in the other segment, but I, I'm bringing this up now because Bernie is the best choice, and again, there's eight or nine different reasons. I mean, he marched with Martin Luther King, he's arrested in the civil rights movement. Like, it, it, this is not a guy that is afraid of taking on systems of power that he knows to be unjust. So, Tulsi people, uh, to a larger extent, are being silly, in my mind, by refusing to get on board with us. And I don't consider it to be wrong for us to say as much. If you are throwing your energy into something that is going to be ineffective, a campaign that only has 2% uh, support, and you want to stand around and demand acknowledgement from us online and demand that we protect you and defend you as the DNC uh, takes Tulsi out of the debate stage... And I'm not a, a, a against it, frankly. Well, the only reason why I consider it to be a negative that they've taken Tulsi off is that they're letting Beto O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar stay on. Like, I, I don't see any reason why they should be up there. It, it, it's sort of a joke that anybody at this point who doesn't have at least 3 to 4% is allowed to go up there. And to that end, okay. You know, if, if I had to compromise and let Tulsi up there, I'm not against letting her up there either, but her campaign has stagnated. It has been at 1% or 
since like its inception. It has gone nowhere. You guys have not won over enough people to feasibly win the election. And with Bernie, we just might. We just might be able to beat the most powerful entrenched political interests of this era by getting him the Democratic nomination and then by defeating Trump, we can begin to disaggregate the amount of concentrated wealth that has built up in our society. Whether we're talking about the military industrial complex, whether we're talking about big pharma, whether we're talking about big healthcare, whether we're talking about big agro, whether we're talking about private prisons, <laughs> the private he wants to ban private prisons. Uh, he wants to set up a bunch of green new jobs. He wants to unionize most jobs in the country and begin moving them over to being co-ops. I mean, this is the kind of candidate we need at this era. The kind of guy who is going to revitalize the American economy by putting money into the hands of workers so that they can go out and spend it on objects and things that they need to survive, that is far more beneficial to the economy than putting it in the hands of a few wealthy people that just put it in savings account. And they use money to generate more money, but they don't spend it on anything. It doesn't stimulate anything. Putting most of the wealth in the hands of 1% is not good for society. And Bernie's the candidate that could undo that. So if this comes across as shaming you, when I point this out to you, vote shaming doesn't work on me, what you're really saying is that I like Tulsi and for and no reason can you bring it up to me is going to compel me to vote for Bernie over her. I'm like, okay, well then you're a silly person and I have the right to shame you for that because you're not being logical, okay? It's not like a crime. Like, like even the Hillary team, as odious as they were, there is an ethical underlying logic to voting for her over Donald Trump. There was. It was the dreamers, you know? It was the fact that he has ramped up his terrorism of immigrants. And a lot of these same people, by the way, and Michael Brooks made an excellent point of bringing this up, and I'm going to reiterate his story here so you can hear it. A lot of these people are... Fine and dandy to consider themselves like martyrs and heroes for voting Green Party or not voting at all or writing in Bernie's name. But these same people, that's an easy action. You show up in a booth and you do what is the most, most ethically salient thing you can do at that moment. And Michael, what Michael Brooks says, he knew people that lost his house, their house, uh, because they did not want to pay federal taxes to go to the war in Iraq and the war of Afghanistan. They said that their money would not go to help uh, the military kill people abroad, and they lost their house. And he said that that didn't change anything on a macro level, but you want to talk about real protest of the system, of an unjust system of war, that's how you protest the system. So all you pretend martyrs out there, all you pretend heroes that think you're doing something phenomenal by protest voting need to reevaluate your internal ethical logic. People that say, oh, voting for the lesser of two evils is still evil have not thought about this deeply. They haven't. They are looking at it from a selfish perspective. How it impacts you when you vote in the United States is negligible. How it impacts not just us, but the world matters. Hillary Clinton would not have torn up the Iran deal. Hillary Clinton would not be terrorizing the dreamers, and most immigrants would not be uh, 
afraid of being impounded inside of prisons under her presidency. And yes, I hate her. And yes, I don't want her to be president. And she lost due to her own failures. No one disputes that. These two things can be held at the same time in your mind. Even Noam Chomsky, who is nobody's sellout, made this point quite clearly. You are not thinking clearly if you think that voting for the lesser of two evils is still evil. You don't realize that our politics in this country is a prisoner's dilemma. It is. You have to reckon with that if you want to have any kind of a mature understanding of how things work in this country. So to come to me and say that you don't believe in vote shaming is, again, you're using it as a shield. You're using your lack of logic as a shield for why your behavior doesn't square with reality. It doesn't square with... And and then, again, it's fine if you want to vote that way, but keep it to yourself. Don't share your vote with others because the point is the protest vote, not to be applauded. And this gets to really the heart and soul of why I'm even doing the segment is this idea that you guys want to simultaneously not be shamed into voting for Bernie now, but you also want us to defend you and you want to be held to the same ethical standard as us? You want to think that you are somehow our equals? You're not. Tulsi is a worse candidate than Bernie. She's a mixed bag in Congress. Both in her voting record and in her spoken word, she is a mixed bag. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad. So to claim that you guys are ethically equal with us is disingenuous. It is just disingenuous. Because you are not thinking about this clearly, A, as I have just pointed out, and B... The fact that you want to not think about it clearly and still get a round of applause? Like, are you kidding me? Like, this hubris that you guys have is unbelievable. Like, we're here struggling, struggling to take out Joe Biden and Liz Warren because neither of them are sufficient for the job that has to be done. I would rather take Liz Warren than Biden, but Bernie is the candidate. You know, I mean, it goes without saying. And we need to defeat both of them in this primary so that we can then beat Donald Trump and then begin beating back capital. The task ahead of us is monumental. And that 2% of the progressive vote is this foolish that they want to simultaneously stand around and jerk themselves off about how they are the real progressive choice and Bernie's a sellout or whatever else you want to say. I mean, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I can't take it. Like, I said at one point, we're on the same side. And supposedly we are, but you guys aren't thinking about this clearly. Honestly. Like, you aren't. If you support both, I'm with you. If you support Tulsi more, but you acknowledge that Bernie is stronger on these issues, if you have an actual critique of uh, Tulsi that isn't just fawning praise... I'm with you. But so many of her supporters online just refuse to acknowledge these deficiencies to such an extent that I really do wonder if they're even genuine. She has 2% of the vote, so it's clearly not many people. And I really wonder how much of this is uh, trolling just created to sort of divide us uh, in the movement. It hasn't worked. Again, it's only 2%. I keep bringing back to that because that's not a lot of the Democratic vote. The progressive vote is almost entirely behind Bernie, and then divided up from there, I guess some of them are with Warren, some of them are with Tulsi, and maybe some of them are with Andrew Yang. I think most of Yang supporters are people that uh, 
have more of a libertarian ideology, which I don't really think is progressive, but, you know, we are a broad coalition. So all of this is to say that we are allowed to shame you for doing things that are foolish. Shame exists to stop people from doing foolish things in a relatively harmless manner. Like, as much as Hillary Clinton's vote shaming didn't win your vote, did it harm you actively? Did it hurt? You know, maybe some people said some mean things to you, you know, but I mean, that's the nature of the online world. Like, and that's the nature of even real life, frankly, you know? So shaming in and of itself is not a crime. And it is, in fact, something that can be used. Should it be what you use as your go-to right out the gate? No. Is it what you base a political campaign on? Absolutely not. That would be stupid. But it isn't something that is immediately disqualifying. And the people that treat it as such are cowards. Plain and simple. Uh, You're using that term as a shield to shield yourself from criticism so you don't have to feel bad about being illogical, about making a dumb decision And then you simultaneously, again, you want to tell us that you are more progressive or equally progressive? Please, get over yourself. Get over yourself and your commitment to bad ideas. Plain and simple. Vote shaming is not a crime. And I actually advocate for it. I also voted for Hillary Clinton. I don't consider that to be at odds with my socialism in the slightest. She is an enemy of everything that I stand for and a poster child of neoliberalism and I would vote for her again over Donald Trump because at the very least, I could sleep at night knowing that some people weren't going to be deported to uh, Iraq. There was a guy deported to Iraq who died over there. He spent his whole life here. He was brought over here as like a six-month-old. They deported him. Uh, he, he needed diabetes medication, didn't speak the language, died. That kind of cruelty would not have happened under Hillary's campaign. Now, there would have been other forms of cruelty. I get it. But that is the nature of politics in this country. And that brings us all back to today. 2016 is long gone. 2020 is here. And I, I, we, this is our best shot. This is our best shot at defeating Donald Trump and at defeating capitalism in the long run is to get a guy like Bernie in so that we can have a more democratic distribution of wealth amongst the public. So please, if you have any kind of ethical fortitude, take what I'm saying as the instructive uh, audible that it is meant to be. Speech, I don't know. Uh, dialogue, uh, the instructive dialogue that it is meant to be. I don't want people to walk away from this feeling bad or attacked. I just want them to think critically about what's at stake and why so many of us advocate for Bernie. I mean, normally I dedicate my time and energy to like going on about like Kamala and Biden supporters and how like foolish they are. But I, I feel like I've had to do this more and more recently because the Tulsi people seem to be getting desperate online since she hasn't qualified for this debate and her campaign's kind of stagnated and it just seems like they keep popping up in my feed with this sort of nonsense and it's not something that I'm prepared to leave unchallenged. We'll, We'll leave it at that. Moving on to the climate change section of this podcast. So as we segue into the climate town halls from last night 
I'm going to preface this by saying that the only two candidates that really warrant discussion are going to be Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders, and uh, for different reasons. Well, in the sense that they're the only two that have any chance of getting elected, while simultaneously being the only people that have any kind of philosophy that could be considered acknowledgement of the severity of the crisis. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to put it other than to say that if you expect Biden to solve the crisis, <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> come on, you know, and I, I, I could talk about Biden's fucking capillary popping. I, I don't really feel like, I mean, of all the things that you could talk about with Biden, like falling to pieces on this campaign trail, that to me feels like you're, 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 you're picking something out that otherwise might could be innocuous. You know, that can be caused by stress. You know, it can also be caused by... Let's not worry about the causes. Again, this isn't something that, that really warrants discussion. He is not a climate candidate. He really just wants to penalize these fossil fuel industry executives with like a $3,000 fine. There's nothing to write home about. And I, I think that we've hit the point where he can't win. Frankly, I think he's going to start plummeting the polls rather quickly. And I think that Bernie uh, is going to... It, call me optimistic, I think he's going to win Iowa. And that's a state that supposedly Liz Warren stands a better chance of winning. I definitely think Bernie will win New Hampshire. But I don't think that Biden is... is I, th I think he's sort of done before we've even cast the votes at this point. Uh, and besides, again, he's not going to do anything about the climate crisis. I will say that Kamala Harris talking about banning straws was laughable and kind of cringy, you know, but that, that right there, she's not going to be president either. You know, she, she's, she has middling numbers below 10% and hasn't been able to break out of that. Her best day was when she announced and it's been more or less a mediocre, uh, fourth or fifth tier candidate since. And again, the reason for that is because, you know, people see through her shit. She's not uh, a real progressive. Nothing about her plans is very exciting. You know, if the, if the race was comprised of Kamala, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, and Pete Buttigieg, you know, I mean, God help us all, but, but Kamala would probably be doing a lot better in that kind of a race, but that's not the race we have. And uh, most of the support that would go to Kamala is in Liz Warren's camp, which is uh, well-educated whites. Uh, demographically speaking, that's where they fall. Uh, working class of all demographics fall in Bernie Sanders' category, as does the youth vote. And, uh, you know, I mean, elderly Dems and traditional Dem voters that don't pay much attention are in Biden's camp, I'm assuming, just a large bulk of elderly people. So, uh, of which there are fewer in the Democratic Party, you know, every day. Uh, so, between uh, Liz Warren and Bernie, uh, the obvious gold medal goes to Bernie. Uh, because Bernie, uh, and this is one of the big takeaways from last night, is Bernie uh, talked about nationalizing the oil and gas industry, which is a huge... Like, I, 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 if I say that out loud, I don't feel like everyone understands what that means. 
an ending of the privatization of the oil and gas industry in America would be a sea change. It would be one of a list of like five things you can propose that I would put on the defeating of American capital, frankly, uh, because that special interest group is quite large and that special interest group is quite powerful and it is tied inexorably to the energy sector. They're, they are interrelated and in a lot of ways they're the same because we're talking about coal and natural gas on top of just oil. You know, so this is the energy, which is the lifeblood of how our economy is able to function. Uh, to nationalize that would not just be necessary, in my mind. I mean, it is necessary, you know, but a lot of candidates obviously wouldn't even consider it, Liz Warren being one of them. But doing this... Ending their privatized profits at our expense and the world's expense is one of our keystone issues, and it would drastically increase the chances of surviving the climate crisis because we would be removing the lobbying efforts effectively of ExxonMobil, BP, any and all oil and gas industry that you can think of would, would cease in its current functionality to be able to implement changes to policy through pressure, political pressure. Such a victory, such a windfall for the left movement in this country, but also for the ecology movement in this country. Like, the two have a lot in common, you know, because democratic socialism, socialism is kind of an innate philosophy. That's why when I talk about how a lot of Americans probably agree that we should have an even equal distribution of resources so that everyone is able to prosper. When I talk about, when I say that, that doesn't sound so radical. You know, again, that philosophy is actually kind of in the, the bedrock of American democracy. It's just something that gets lost uh, in all the noise. Uh, and they tell you that capitalism allows for that, but clearly it doesn't. And uh, by conquering the oil and natural gas industry in this way, we will strike a decisive blow against capital. I mean, it it's phenomenal that Bernie said he would be willing to do this. And he should do this. I, I can't tell you how exciting that is to hear. Like, Jeremy Corbyn talked about doing that in the UK. Another thing that I, I greatly approve of. Or another candidate that I greatly approve of. Uh, he has drawbacks as well. Uh, I don't believe that he's an anti-Semite. I, I do believe he needs to be a better communicator on this issue, as Bernie has become, where he's able to slap down smears, though. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, at least so far as I've seen, is is not as good at addressing it as Bernie is. Bernie is... Bernie's a once-in-a-lifetime candidate, because the fact that he's polling as highly as he is in the face of so much established opposition is only the result of his charisma, of the power of these ideas, and political savvy. Because he has realized, and this is something Corbin has not woken up to, that the mainstream media will never be an ally of his. So he has created different kinds of media. He has his, uh, the podcast here, The Burn. He uh, has come out with their own newsletter. And uh, he makes it an effort through his email lists and through his fundraising to actually challenge 
the established power of the country. He had a huge rally in Kentucky outside of Mitch McConnell's house uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, maybe maybe a week ago. I mean, it, it's uh, no, about two weeks ago. Uh, it, it's unlike any other politician in the world. Getting him elected would be a sea change for democracy everywhere. It would finally take the boot off the throat of the world. And another thing that he talked about, great segue, is ending our military's use of holding on to these oil and gas reserves around the world. Using our military, like for the invasion of Iraq, to secure natural gas and oil. Again, if we're moving away from oil with a Green New Deal, which would be a great plan to provide jobs, high-paying, good jobs to people, as well as give us a great segue to get these natural gas agencies or these oil and natural gas companies uh, reined in uh, to begin dismantling them, frankly, and nationalizing them, uh, as they should have been all along. Like, there are certain things that you could make an argument that could be privatized with relatively little change if they were socialized. Uh, for example, shoes, you know. Now, I have my own criticism of shoes. Uh, for example, the fact that uh, we allow slave labor to make them. You know, most of the footwear you buy, you know, if you're going with cheap footwear, like quality but cheap, you know, we talk about just like Nike, Adidas, what have you. It's produced by slaves, you know, in China or Indonesia. Uh, and nobody talks about it. Nobody cares about it. It gets brought up every couple of years as they do a bust on one of these, uh, sweatshops, but nothing ever comes of it. And, uh, that's one of the relatively like, uh, mundane affairs. Like that's horrifying in and of itself that people can die in these sweatshops or they're threatened. There's like slave labor used for, for shrimp farms. But again, it doesn't get brought up because, we don't want Americans to think about that. The reason why they're able to have these cheap goods provided in grocery stores is slave labor. You don't want Americans to think about that because then they might start to feel bad and want to change that. And, of course, the argument they always made is, well, that would raise the price of these goods. Yes, it would. But you know what would not raise the price of these goods? You know what would maybe uh, help make sure that these goods stay cheap and we have humane workers? Ending the privatization. Because the one thing that capitalists never tell you and never account for in their calculation is themselves, is how much of a drain they are on the process. An owner, a, a business person, the person who owns the business, is a parasite, as I have said before, a drain on the corporation. You could remove them from the equation and effectively nothing else would change in the company. It would keep running. You have, like, basically what they are are uh, middlemen that go between different groups of workers, whether we're talking about, like, when I was at call center, and I, I think I used this anecdote last week, there was the sales force, uh, the customer support center, and uh, the retention team, uh, which were all sort of differently run groups. Uh, no, no, it was the fulfillment center. That was the other, because the retention team's a part of sales. Right, so the sales, us in technical and customer support, and the uh, fulfillment team. Those three divisions were the company. They did everything. Everyone above them is a middleman, and you could argue that, well, no, they help organize things, and they're part of, you know, big the big strategy of it all. But then why does that 
very small demographic get the lion's share of the profit. And that's true across the entire United States. Why do these capitalists, who consistently make the argument for capitalism, always leave themselves out of the equation when they talk about ending slave labor as a way for cheap goods? They're always like, yeah, well, I've got to get my paycheck. I've got to get my uh, 300 times the, the regular salary of, a, of the lowest paid employee in my company. I have to get that. When you remove them, you could actually pay these people a living wage so that they could survive. They wouldn't be slaves. And also, it's a more humane system that doesn't have this kind of drain. Like, they don't tell you how ultimately socialism is reducing inefficiency, how they are inefficient themselves. Their existence is an inefficiency. They justify it because they have a vested interest in doing so. All their money is reliant on them doing so. But they themselves are useless you can employ people in a uh, worker co-op uh, to do grand strategy, and by allowing everyone to have a vote, you would have a much, much more closely aligned uh, pay discrepancy. Uh, for example, example, I bring this up, the Madrigan Corporation in Spain is the world's largest uh, co-op, and the pay discrepancy between the lowest and highest paid employee is only 13 times. So the most valuable person at that company is still only paid 13 times more than the lowest paid employee. So that isn't to say that they're not getting paid more. They're valued. But CEOs in this country get paid 300 times more. See, it's not even comparable. They're they're in completely different stratospheres of wealth. And that's a huge drain on the economy. Again, that's money that goes into the pockets of millionaires and billionaires who just invest that money to make more money. They don't spend it on the economy. It doesn't go into the hands of people so that we can pay for our bills, our mortgages, our cars, take out loans, pay down student debt. Any number of things we would use the money on, they just sit on like dragons. They pile up gold underneath of them and just sit on top of it and do nothing with it. Which brings us back to the climate debate. Nationalizing these industries would end that privatization uh, of wealth for that industry, one of the lifeblood industries of the economy. Huge victory for us. Liz Warren said, I will not do that. She said she would not nationalize the oil and gas industry. She does recognize that they are the problem. She did mention that, where she said she doesn't want us talking about straws or bans on plastic because even those things are good. I'm not going to discourage you from doing them. You know, I don't like paper straws as much as the next person, but fine. You know, I, 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 it's a compromise I'm capable of making, you know, like it's not something that is breaking my spirit to do, but paper straws are not going to save the environment. Ending the biggest polluters, ending how they pollute Moving our economy over to a green energy economy will save the environment. It'll save the planet. And Liz Warren laid it out when she said that it's these major oil and gas companies that are causing us to try to talk about these micro solutions, things that you feel you can do. And again, and she put it really well and elegantly to her credit. I'm not in her camp, but she did put it well when she said that – these companies are, or no, we, we as individuals are always looking for the part that we can contribute to. We are always looking for the solution that, uh, we have control over in our own lives, whether, you know, that's eating soy, whether that's, um, 
using using reusable bags when you go to the grocery store, you know, driving a hybrid car. We're always looking for the solution we control. But 70% of the world's pollution or like 90% of the world's pollution is caused by like 77 companies. It's something like that. It's like a ridiculously skewed number. It's caused by just a few companies. So it's not something you as an individual have power over. Do those things if you feel that they help, you know, if they make you feel better. I don't want to knock them. I'm not telling you what to do with your life in that regard. However, these companies are what the problem is being caused by. They have to go. And Liz Warren said, you know, these companies, whenever we talk about these sort of individualistic uh, solutions, eating healthier, hybrid cars, etc., those companies shout, you know, jump for joy. Because the argument goes from regulating and dismantling them to, I should really drink out of paper cups. You know, like, it, it just, it takes your mind off of the problem. And Bernie Sanders has a much better solution to this, which is, yeah, let's get rid of them. Let's nationalize them. Liz Warren is not willing to do that. She talks about green militarism, which is disgusting. I mean, the U.S. Army... Our armed forces are one of the biggest, have one of the biggest carbon footprints in the world. And again, they're also being used to defend oil and natural gas abroad. So ending the military in its current size, not only would it save money since it's such a colossal waste of money. I mean, the Pentagon, you want to talk about boondoggles. You want to talk about bloated waste in government. Like for those of you that are libertarians, let's be real. Let's be real. The Pentagon is the biggest, most bloated waste of money on the planet Earth. They lost like $25 trillion. They refused to to go through audits because they know they'd fail. Like, they waste money like you wouldn't believe. And that's where the American taxpayers' dollars go to. And Liz Warren's solution is to use the military to sort of, like, impose greenology on the planet... And Bernie's solution is, no, let's just ramp back the military. Let's ramp back imperialism. We'll save on the carbon emissions. We'll save money from the taxpayers. And then we'll begin putting that money back into the economy. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty uh, clear and succinct way of describing the... uh, the solutions uh, between the two. I, I appreciate Liz Warren's ideas, you know, and I, I, I'm not telling her to drop out. I, I, she and Bernie have different coalitions. The people she appeals to are typically well-educated white people. Bernie has one of the largest amount of just multicultured and multicolored people supporting him, an even split between men and women, because what he speaks to is worker uh, mentality. He's speaking to the working poor, uh, those that have been screwed over by the system, about how he's going to change it so that it finally works for everyone, not just a few wealthy f- people. You know, and I think that that is what we're going to need for the green revolution that's to come. Because if we don't do a green revolution, if we let guys like Trump and Bolsonaro destroy the world, they will. They will. There's no reason why the world can't be destroyed. It's not a permanent thing. Nothing is permanent. You know, there's been extinction events before. It's not like there's any law of nature or divine providence that will stand in our way from destroying ourselves. So I think that people really need to view this from the perspective of doing what's necessary, which Bernie is willing to do what's necessary 
you know, a lot of people would say that this is too extreme, it's too far. There is no extreme or far enough to save the planet. If I told you it was necessary to save the planet, if I told you that there was no way the planet would survive without it, would you really object to it? Would you say that the human race is not worth doing this for? You know? And all he's talking about is ending the wealthy vested interests of a few people. Like, come on. It's not comparable. He's not that radical. It's not that extreme. He's just the most salient, clear thinker we have in politics. And it is a pleasure and an honor to be a part of his campaign. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to Sociable Socialism. Uh, This was a lot of fun for me. And uh, have a good afternoon. Goodbye.